0: From LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org.
1: I did
2: a nude Polaroids in the 80s.
1: I'm Sean Cannon. That's Mick Foley. And you don't want to see him. You don't want to see him. You don't. Want to see him. From WFPK in Louisville, Kentucky, it's the guest list. He didn't really, by the way. I don't think. Steer into it. <laughs> Today on The Guest List, alt-rapper Open Mike Eagle talks about the importance of pulling back the curtain on the music industry.
3: If I'm in the dark about something, I can be very wrong in whatever I'm assuming it is. So I've learned that it's important for me to know the actual states of things. Like, First of all, to, to find out very early on in, in having a recording career that most record labels is just one dude,
1: you know <laughs> what I mean? I was, Mind blowing to me when I realize it's like, wait a minute, it's just you? And former WWE World Champion Mick Foley talks about an unlikely source of inspiration for his in ring insanity. That's all coming up in the next 4,166 metric seconds on the guest list. And Mike Eagle uh, isn't your ordinary rapper and I don't just mean that because he's reflective and analytical I mean, really just about any rapper worth his salt is gonna be reflective and analytical but uh, the specific manner in which he uh, observes and breaks down things gives him a pretty unique approach to his music and I, I think that shines through in his uh, his off-kilter brand of alt rap that's erudite w- without feeling esoteric Now part of that is because of his educational background, which we touch on in this conversation uh, that that took place at South by Southwest, Um, but that's not all of it, you'll see what I mean in just a bit.
3: Now, you know you know how how long have you
1: been doing this uh, on a professional level That's
3: an interesting question to answer I've been doing it as my only means of income for about six six years okay um but i've been recording and releasing rap music and performing it for you know 10 11 12 years you know
1: man so what was the what was the catalyst though for you going from uh doing it on the side Uh, To to doing it like full time.
3: The main catalyst was me getting let go from my job. Um, That was like really that's what opened the door for for um. But I mean, but literally though, like I was doing all I could do with a day job to try to make money off of music. In the in the way that you have to make money off of music as a performer. Like there's other ways you can make money off of music where you can still have a day job and do it. But as a performer, um, especially one that's a relative unknown. You gotta be able to like play every show, uh, go to every festival that you can go to. Um, You gotta be able to get in front of people and take advantage and like really, you gotta be able to show people that you're down to do whatever. I mean, you know, whatever within reason. Um, And me getting let go from my job really gave me the opportunity to show how far I was willing to go to make this a real thing. You know.
1: Oh, did did you think though that you were like actually? ready to do it full-time at that point though or was it just well i guess now is the time i have to do it i mean i didn't want
3: to do anything else really was the thing uh so it was like when that opportunity arose the and i I, and i was on unemployment for a good two years and that was like this little buffer that was like can you know with me and my family was like can we figure out how to make music work before your unemployment runs out and um we started then. We found ways to make income. And it's not found because it's like there's ways to make money as an independent musician. Um, there's a lot of independent musicians in this town right now making a lot of money. Um, it's This is popular myth that there's zero money left. And there's not as much money as there used to be. There's still a ton of money around. Um, so the ways to pass are already well laid out. And you just have to be, you have to have a certain level of availability to take advantage of everything. Um, and really, the, the biggest thing that I see holding a lot of people back that I know personally is just that they, they're, they're not self-motivated to produce. My aesthetic, I think, started With like hearing like a tribe called Quest when I was real little or something like that's like hearing something like that and seeing how like and and I mean like the whole Native Tongues family, like seeing how they were presented and how they presented themselves. I didn't take themselves so seriously and everything that they made had like it it seemed to have this melodic quality that resonated with me. Um, Seeing that as a child made me think I could do that. Like, it made me think that there, it made me know that there is a space in the world for me to be uh, an artist of some sort. Um, and I think having, being able to uh, get down with the Project Blow Collective out in LA was like this bridge. Like, okay, so I already have the belief that I can belong, I can do something, I can bring something to the table, I can be a part of that world. And then being around the Project Blow and seeing people actually doing it and being able to hang around them and see and and figure it out based on like oh this is these aren't lofty magical goals this is literally selling music to people and selling music to record labels that are selling music to people and um and selling yourself as an idea to people who can uh book shows and 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 you know and and oh at that time it was calling record stores to buy albums from, like I used to do that on behalf of Project Blow Records, mm-hmm. like whatever they had stock of. So I'd basically
1: be- their sales rep.
3: I was, I was. I mean, but I never got paid for any of that. So I, like, it wasn't like an official job <laughs> right, title. To right, right. so me, I looked at it like an internship, but that's because I understood internships and I understand like why they're necessary. But I was never even an official intern. I was just, I would show up every day, see what was needed, see where I could help and see how things work you know and making the business real to me that way really let me know like I can do this you know what I mean like at whatever capacity I can do it it can be done um but yeah being when I got laid off my capacity to do the thing increased uh the only unknown was how much money could I actually make in what was that two thousand nine dollars you know what I mean like because in 2002, it would have been bountiful. You know what I mean? I and mean, that was the end of it. But, like, when everybody was buying CDs, when, like, you know, like, you could have underground L.A. guy sell 10,000 units, and nobody east of the Mississippi could have ever heard of them. But that's 100 grand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. like, out of the trunk, you could do that. When when, when CDs were, um, were the main platform, but... As that all started to slowly go away, it was like, okay, we have the capacity to build a career, but, like, what is the actual income level going to be, you know? And, um, you know, I had to slowly kind of see what was what, and then I became very fortunate a few years ago to end up with a really solid manager, and that changed everything, too. That changed absolutely. Like, that was really the step completely outside of the DIY world that I was steeped in into like oh this is how the business works and and the business like even though the business is still basically because people don't buy music anymore these machines still exist for a reason because you have to like partner with people to sell the idea of you as a musician to like this national or international audience you know what I mean like the marketing and and the branding and and all this stuff that like people don't want to think about And you don't have to think about it. But the guys running record labels have to think about it. And that's who's selling the most records is record labels. (laughs) You know what I mean? Even if it's a lot less than it used to be, you know, like it's their business to figure out how to do that. And they've, you know, for the most part, they've got that part figured out, you know?
1: It's it's an interesting thing. Like, you know, you said a couple of times something that you don't hear from musicians a lot, which was uh, selling the idea of you Mm -hmm. as a musician. And you know there's a bit of abstraction there sure where it, it no longer becomes necessarily about you so much as about uh a version of you that you create absolutely for other people absolutely. and 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 the thing is most musicians do that mm-hmm. but they don't, they don't it's not a conscious thing right you know what i mean but it sounds like for you that that is maybe at least a little bit more conscious or you're aware of the fact that it happens.
3: I am aware of the fact that it happens. And I and I don't think it's as much about an abstraction to me as a person. As more, I think it's more about an understanding of how who I am fits into the world at large. Because that's what the the sales typically is. It's not that like somebody's saying that I'm something anywhere, any any even degree different from what I actually am. What they're saying is, He's the guy that says this. He's the guy that does this and hangs out with these people and he's doing this and this and that and that and his music reflects all of that. That's who this guy is. And they sell that to distributors and they sell that like, you know, I had to get I had to get a booking agent. A booking agent had to be sold on me as a commodity, you know, and and it's not only just hearing the music but it's getting an understanding of how I fit into this conversation that nationally or in the mainstream consciousness, I'm not a part of, you know, but if, if, if that was all that there was to be said, then, you know, there would be no independent rap, really. There'd only be the people who you've heard of, but, but, These conversations that happen between, like, my management and agents and smaller record labels and distributors and and record buyers, like, these conversations about, like, what's happening outside of that, those are the conversations I get sold in.
1: See, I I guess the the thing, like, I I wonder if the way you're talking about this has anything to do with the fact that, like, clearly you seem like a savvy business guy, uh, but also, like... You're talking about it in a pretty intellectual way, the way that most musicians don't talk about it, and I wonder if the fact that you have a degree in psychology has anything to do with, like, how with, like, how you view yourself as a musician, how you fit into the larger world. I mean, I know in a sense it has to, no matter what.
3: I'll tell you this: with me, um, I it's very important to me to understand how things work because if I don't understand how things work, then I start internalizing weird. It's not true you know what I mean and either either that like I'm super awesome and great or I'm a piece of shit, or you know what I mean like if I don't under- if I think it's magic, then like I'm going to start getting warped ideas about myself so like to me it's very important that I know like just the actualities of things like it just, it just helps me to ease my mind a lot you know and because you know making making music on your own terms and trying to sell it to people this is a scary. Shit. You know,
1: okay. That I mean, that makes a lot more sense. And so, it's not so much because of the training that you have that you feel that way, but you can use that training to sort of pick things apart. Yeah, yeah. And I just, you know, I
3: just, I, I, I came into this. It's funny. I was explaining this to early, some to someone earlier that um, uh, the benefits of coming from DIY is that the business, in some sense, isn't a mystery to you. The negative to DIY is that it can give you a lot of really wrong ideas about how the bigger part of the business works. It can give you a lot of real false notions about, like, gatekeepers and who the gatekeepers are and what they want and what you'd have to do. And, like, it's just it's it's a lot of uh, hocus pocus. If you. I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like, you, you, you when you DIY, you think you're capable, and you find out what you're capable of, and you find out what the machines do, like, in, in an abstract sense. And um, you're a certain distance away from that, so you can just come with a lot of really f***ed up notions. I can just always remember, like, when my first album came out, my first album came out, my first couple albums, I, I think is what I was trying to say. Like, I kept looking for some magical thing to happen that was just gonna like change everything. I kept looking for this game changer thing. I kept, in my head, that was like, something was gonna happen. Like I remember, man, I got my first record deal and I still had a day job um, with this independent called Mush Records. And I can remember, <laughs> I can remember walking around at work that next day in my head like, oh. Wait till these just wait till they see. I'm about to, man. I'm about to be. Oh my God, I'm man. I'm about, to, man. I'm about to be. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just with all oh, that thinking, like that everything was gonna be, like expecting something to come along and make everything better. You know what I mean? And I think that was cause of this DIY. Shit. I just kept thinking that just I was gonna wake up one day and it was gonna be industry Christmas in my life or some. Shit, you know what I mean? But like. <laughs> But to, 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 I had to take all that shit apart in my head, and it helps to just know how things really work. Dark comedy, cold is the ocean at a low, cause nobody seems to know when I'm joking. For those who haven't heard me, I'm bad at sarcasm, so I work in absurdity. On that laugh to keep from tip life. If I'm in the dark about something, I can be very wrong. And whatever I'm assuming it is. So I've learned that it's important for me to know the actual states of things. Like, the actual, like what can really happen? What does this, what is, what is first of all, to, to find out very early on in, in having a recording career that most record labels is just one dude, you know <laughs> what I mean?
0: That was f-
3: mind-blowing <laughs> to me when I realized, it's like, wait a minute. It's just you? Like, you don't even have, like, an intern or an assistant. Like, in so many label situations, are like that. It's just one dude. And that's just like, oh, my God. Like, and that's the kind of thing that'll put me in a state of, oh, okay, so he's just, he's emailing distribution. He's emailing artists. He's emailing um, packaging people, art people. He's basically doing the same thing I do you know um it's just that he's built a business and built a brand to where um there's more recognition there's more there's higher expectations of quality and there's higher expectations of sales you know but it just became important to me to take all the mystery away
1: yeah well you know you've you mentioned like sort of being in your head a lot and is, is that always like have you always been yeah. that way ever since
3: you were a kid because mm-hmm. i don't, I, I never really like had social skills and like and I was always intimidated by people socially because I didn't know what the f- was going on. Like I always felt like there was like a rule book that I didn't get. You know what I mean? And so like I'm always worried about. I was always worried about not knowing what was going on and and um and somehow making a mistake. Um and I you know and slowly just putting myself in weird ass situation after weird ass situation, you start to oh okay, you just get a handle on things. And it's kind of the same thing. Like you know I had to I had to get a handle on what the business actually was so that I wouldn't be in my head so much about it.
1: So, you know, a- after you went to school, got a degree in psychology, what was what was your deal when you were a kid? Since you can, since you can probably, uh, since you can diagnose oh, that. Um,
3: I honestly, <laughs> I honestly believe. I honestly, and I've never been, I've never, I never got tested or anything, but I do believe that I was on some end of the autism spectrum, I believe, when I was uh, very young. Uh, I believe that um, social skills come a little bit more natural for other people than they did for me. So for me, it was like I had to apply myself to learning them because they didn't just kind of occur to me in a way that it seemed they seem to occur to other people. And I've learned that that's part like that is a little bit of it's it's related to autism in a way that I mean, like I said, I've never been tested, so I, I couldn't, you know, I, I would I would be taking a leap to say that that was for sure. But the more that I've learned about um, brain functioning, I feel like maybe that's that's something like what I was dealing with and continue to deal with in a way, but in a, in a way that's much more hands-on and confrontational now inside of myself than it used to be, which it used to be very
1: uh, in my head and not trying. So you're like more, it's a weird thing to say, but you're more assertive with yourself.
3: Yeah, a lot more.
1: Because you know, normally when people hear you're assertive, that means like
3: they're confronting other people. Yeah, no, but just inside of me, just because like I'll think myself out of most situations, you know, like new, new situations, especially new situations socially, I, I get really weird. I get really, and I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to do things I don't know how to do, you know. I get really, um, you know, I get really intimidated easily with with situations that I don't understand. On a very um very micro level
1: do you find yourself sort of related to that like uh meeting people talking to people or maybe even people you know and just thinking like oh here's here's what this guy's got oh this is what you know do you, do you find yourself like diagnosing other people sometimes because no, no, I know really. that i i like I know people who are uh in that world and and they can't help themselves
3: the only thing that 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 is that that I often i am very aware of if i think somebody is a sociopath Hmm. because i can't really be around people you
1: probably get a lot of that in the in the music industry too i would assume yeah uh, (laughs) you know that's
3: true and that's that's another thing i had to learn early on like like the the business uh attracts a lot of people who don't really give a shit about other people you know um people who look yeah like if, if you're a person who looks at Artists like a commodity in some way, like that might be a sign that something else is happening with you and your understanding of other people, which is ultimately what being a sociopath comes down to. You know, like you see people as either beneficial to you or a hindrance to you, not like another person, you know. And yeah, so I have have to be wary of that. I can't really I can't really with people like that. I'll I'll, it drives me crazy. I'll internalize. Oh, you know what I mean? It gets in my head
1: like that that's intriguing to me because most people don't know how to articulate that point you know they they don't know how to say this person might be a sociopath because of how they treat other people uh and that's not just in the music industry it's everywhere so yeah. so, it's, so it's 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 kind of funny when i hear you talk about it that way cuz most people might sort of inherently have a clue about that Mm -hmm. or you know maybe intuitively can sort of see it but uh i I imagine it makes it a lot easier when you're like well here's the tick box for that and for that
3: yeah i mean you know because that's the thing especially about like with sociopaths like we we live like our country is like a sociopath factory man like like it it people get ahead when they start embracing treating other people that way like you know, they, they've done studies and like, they said like a lot of the CEOs of, of the biggest companies, uh, in our country, like they test, <laughs> mm-hmm. they test like sociopaths do because like it in that, in that environment, in most environments where sales is critical, you know, when you look at people like opportunities to get ahead, you know, um, instead of like, humans it, it makes it easier for you to con people it makes it easier for you to trick people it makes it easier for you to step on somebody to get ahead and like that's you know that's that's part of the values of our economic system at least and i think that trickles down into a lot of stuff
1: and so you're it's so that's kind of it just hit me but basically, you're trying to circumvent that in small ways at least by like offering advice to other people who because that's something you know in meant something in business that doesn't happen as often as you would think it does uh and it, and I know it doesn't happen as much in the music industry, like yeah. practical advice because if someone else looks like they might have some success, you don't want to help them leapfrog right. over you
3: right
1: I mean it, you know but you know it it I have ego problems too.
3: I have very pronounced ego problems. You know what I mean? There's still situations where my friends get sh- like, F- the hell I want that. You know what I mean? Um, it's taken, It's taken a lot of work for me to come down off of that uh, and be like and understand, man, if somebody else gets something, it's not that they got something of mine. You know what I mean? And I'm going to get what I'm going to get, and I'm, and I'm already getting quite a bit, you know? So, like, I have to, like, but I have to remind myself that a lot. You know, because I do still get that little ego thing. Like, oh, that's, you know, I want it all. You know what I mean? Um, and that's, I guess that's the little tiny sociopath in me.
1: When we come back from the break, you'll find out exactly where that little sociopath and open mic eagle comes from. And legendary professional wrestler Mick Foley talks about how Tori Amos, Well, you'll have to wait and find out. It's the guest list. Steer into it. Pancakes, making bacon pancakes, cakes, 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 cakes. I'm Sean Cannon. It's The Guest List. Let's go ahead and jump back into my conversation with rapper Open Mike Eagle as we talk more about uh, fighting jealousy when it inevitably comes up. That, that happens, though, I think with just about everybody. It's just a matter of how quickly you're able to say no to that voice. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of lizard brain yes, instantaneous exactly. interaction w- exactly. with yourself where you think no, uh, because, you know, that like it's just, I guess that's the thing, it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen to everybody in certain situations. It's just a matter of how quickly you can say no to it.
3: And, and, you know, and I've I've also, you know, I've, I've been trying to understand it more too. And, you know, I have, I think in terms of my upbringing, it's just been some things that have happened that have like, made it where I I might crave this concept of allness and attention and opportunity in a way that might be inflated, and I have to, like, deal with that too. You know what I mean? So a lot of times it might not be just that quick thing. It might be, like, a year of me, like, trying to understand why I keep getting this feeling about this person and, like, tracing it back, like, oh, okay, it's because of some other sh- It happened to me when I was little, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, yeah.
1: So what was your family setting like when you were a kid?
3: Um, my... I grew up with my grandparents primarily, my mother's parents. Okay. My mom, uh, was, was, uh, man, I don't even know how to safely say it, but she's... So my mom, um, was unconventional in a lot of ways, and she got in trouble with the law a little bit, and, um she wasn't a very stable person so we didn't grow up with her and my dad always lived in LA um he always had a role in my life but I didn't I never really lived with him like I used to go stay with him sometimes but I never really like lived with him um and yeah I primarily grew up with my grandparents and uh in Chicago
1: so that makes that makes a lot of sense as to what you're saying and yeah no like, like you don't know that exactly <laughs> but yeah you know what I mean and,
3: and you hate to sound cliche about, like that, but it's You know, like you learn it like oh yeah, like how you know wh- or what your relationship is with these primary caregivers. It informs how you see people. It informs like how you relate to people. And I, I've I've certainly had to do a lot of work on that front, and I have a lot more to do too.
1: You know. Well, you know, you said it sounds cliche, and I think that that's part of the problem is a lot of times people say it but they don't mean it. You know, They make jokes like, I got daddy issues, ha-ha. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't actually mean that they even understand. Right? <laughs> they just know that they don't like their dad. <laughs> right. you know, not, not that it actually means something about yeah. who they are as a it's, person. It's
3: not an operational definition. It's just like some abstract thing. Yeah, I know what you
1: mean. Yeah, and so, so I, I understand what you, you mean when you say, oh, I don't want to sound cliche, but I think when you actually talk about it in a, in a real way, In in somewhat of a concrete way that has like a practical applications of this is how it is and well here's how you move forward. I don't think it's you know not not that I need to uh, like talk you down off the ledge of being cliche, but it's not like it's something that just doesn't happen that often in that way, right? Especially because in America we have so much like um, psycho babble that Mm -hmm. people have just learned and internalized. Over the last like 30 years, that
3: like buzzword type, shit. yeah. It doesn't, that there, there, there's no actual understanding of the practical, like you said, the practical applications of what it means for that thing to be there or not be there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so it's nice to see, it, I mean, it's nice to see like in a, because that's the other thing about like creative endeavors is normally those things are visceral and instinctual and immediate. And not that your music isn't, mm-hmm. but you have like tools that most musicians don't have in that regard.
3: That's true. That's very true. I have ways to mine my experience uh, historically and every day in a way and process it in a way that I think, yeah, a lot of people don't employ typically in rap. I see the deepest creams, I hear the darkest clues, might not be synesthesia, might be apartment fumes, good could, could get up and dance, good good get up and dance.
1: Does it does it I feel like do you feel that happening band sometimes band when you're making music? Dance. Or or does or at this point is it is it just like second nature? Yeah, because I don't really think about
3: it. I used I used to be very uh cerebral about how I went about laying things out, and I don't think I have to do that anymore. I think As ideas present themselves to me, um, if I'm attracted to them, they're kind of formed enough where I feel good, you know, I I feel I I don't have to, like, overthink it, really, you know?
1: Yeah, but it used, but it it, it at least at one point was a little bit more of a a learning process. Yeah, it used
3: to be very on purpose. I used to be, I used to try to be very, I don't know what the word is, like, coy or some shit, like... Yeah, it's it's hard to describe, but it used to be a lot more cerebral. Now, now, what I'm enjoying more, because it sounds like I'm putting a value judgment, and I don't necessarily mean to do that, <laughs> but uh, what I'm enjoying more now is exploring the feelings of things and using cerebral energy to like find ways to describe these feelings, or. or Find the right words to give myself license to fully feel a feeling in a recording booth, even like. But that's that's what's more attractive to me in music making these days is is something more in the body than it is in the head. Hmm. That's
1: an interesting thing, especially because of what you were talking about, like growing up and thinking maybe you're somewhere on the spectrum. Because basically, like it sounds like, and and the more like the more I think about this the the more true it becomes like just talking to so many different artists like you think of a musician being someone who is expressing themselves mm-hmm. externally but like what you're talking about doing is being able to understand yourself yeah like in like you said in the body yeah. not in the head mm-hmm. and it's just a really interesting thing since you said that was basically something that you struggled with yeah. as, as a kid. So now you've, you've sort of moved past that and you're kind of, you've used music, you've used, you know, rap as, as a, a means to, uh, Transcend whatever. Yeah, it's like I'm doing
3: physical therapy
1: now. Yeah, no, that's, that's, <laughs> it's it's kind of it's kind of what it it's kind of what it amounts to. Yeah, I never I never thought about it that way either, but
3: I guess that's true. Yeah, and it's funny because I listen to rap differently now too. Like I listen to rap, I listen to rappers rapping, especially like in the recorded songs, and I'm thinking about like what they must have looked like while they were saying that thing, or like yelling that thing, or like what. You know what I mean? Like, the physical uh, manifestation of them. Because typically, the strongest rap, it sounds like people are in their feelings. And just to imagine what it might look like for a person to be, you know, in their feelings. Especially when you consider that a lot of times it's probably like the 25th take. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, like, but there's still that that rawness. Like, that's... I don't know. It's... it's that is the craft of, re- of recording rap music like that is it is to have that immediacy but also that elocution uh like the prac the practice nature of it and the raw immediate emotional nature of it and, like have that balance like that's what's like powerful about recording rap music to me Raised in the bubble,
1: face to the bubble, face to the window, safe from the trouble. Crack rock apocalypse, chase through the rubble. My aunties zombie saying. It's funny because I've never done that specifically until uh, the last Kendrick Lamar record mm-hmm. came out. And there's something about how, like, how, about how much existential despair is on that record mm-hmm. where I've actually thought about, like, Kind of what you're saying. Like, how did that look? Right. What was that like? Mm-hmm. Like, what was the, what was ha- what kind of contortions were were happening in his body?
3: And you know, he's he's an interesting guy because I mean, in in that sense specifically, because every record you hear from him, more than almost anybody else. Um, and it's it's a marvel because he's a very mainstream commodity at this point but he does so much experimenting with delivery he does so like it's almost like his default is experimental like there is no like there's there, there's there doesn't like there doesn't seem to be a a default delivery for him it's just like it's it's almost song by song basis, and I think that's so interesting. And I wonder, like, and like, it's it's funny, like this newer project from him. I guess is a bunch of things that were supposed to be in on to Pimp a Butterfly, but got taken. I I thought about that on to, Tip to Pimp a Butterfly because I can imagine, like, if you got this album, this many deliveries on it, he definitely went in there and laid some eggs at some point. You know what I mean? He definitely <laughs> went in there and to the bed like a few times, and I would love to hear what that sounded like, like. Him trying to figure it out, or him trying to like him deciding that something was good, and then going back and realizing, okay, that wasn't good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's very interesting to me with him.
1: Well, no, that's that's see, that's all that, that's something like because you know that record is so vulnerable. I mean, his his music in general is vulnerable in a way that a lot of rap music isn't. Mm-hmm. And when you put it that way, that makes it seem even more vulnerable because oh, yeah. you know I I don't know, but I would imagine that most of the time when you go into the studio, you don't want everybody in the studio, especially when you're like someone like him who probably has a dozen people standing right. around. You don't want them to see honestly, you.
3: Honestly, I don't think he does record with a bunch of people. I think he couldn't. I think mm. I think he does what what I read a lot about when Andre 3000, when he made a uh, Love Below record. He'd have to be down there by himself figuring it out and then like bring people in when he thought he had it figured out. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's... And and it's the same reason, and not to not to relate myself to either of those dudes, but, like, I don't like to go into studios. I don't like anybody else to record me because I spend a lot of time myself figuring out what the best way to deliver a line is, and that thing I'm looking for is mostly emotional, and I don't really want to do that in front of people. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really, like, I. if I have that even flash of a thought that, oh, I might be wasting this dude's time, doing that then i'm not going to get the best thing you know what i mean so i really do like to record myself for that same reason
1: that's a sense that's, that's yeah that that that's kind of a strange thing like i never really thought about it like that maybe that's one of the reasons why you know because part of it is like with his music with the with, with any like really any music where where you can hear serious vulnerability but I feel like with rap music in particular because it's, you know, similar to like prog rock, it's, it's a genre that's about like strength and power mm. historically. Um, and it's interesting because like thematically there's vulnerability in there. But maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's not the lyrical content so much as it is, like you said, when you're experimenting with delivery so much, you have to be vulnerable because you have to be willing to yeah. to do something horrible,
3: right? Because you when you you make a decision to say something a certain way, you don't know what the f- sound is about to come out of your body at all. No idea. You know what I mean? And like, I've mean, I've been in situations where I'm like, okay, I got it, and then I just bail in the middle of it. Like, no, this is not it at all. You know what I mean? But like you just you, there is there's is such an x factor it's like and I I marvel at what he's doing I marvel at it because the level of output is expected the level of notoriety the level of uh success even um usually i mean and it's more than usually just like it is very atypical for a person to get that much room to experiment but to also be dependent on economically by that many people, you know, it is not often that you get that combination of factors. Um, so it's really like, I think what he's doing is important in a way that people don't even get right now, like on that level, you know what I mean? And how he's going to ultimately influence younger people, you know, because there's just, you just haven't had a guy with that high of a platform who had no one to answer to, really. No one to answer to. I mean, I think Kanye is close, but Kanye Kanye is guided by a certain sensationalism that, you know what I mean, that informs his experimentation even, uh, where Kendrick seems to be literally only his own values. I cannot, I cannot think of another example of when it's been the case that a top-tier artist had that much where people believed in him that much.
0: And I love her, huh? I wanna look at me I yeah. uh, tell me what do you see? I, ah, I put a bullet in the back in the back of the head and the bullet Oh, luminated by the hand of God, boy, don't seem shy. One day at a time. They wanna say it's a worse side. Bomb in the street, gone in the hood, Marble police, whack on the corner with a line full of fiend and a bottle full of lean and a mother wanna scream. Uh. These days of frustration, keep go to the front, yeah, I duck these cold faces, post up me five bases, dreams of realities, peace, blow steam in the face of the piece, stack it far down, we can cry now. Look at me, motherfucker, I smile I, I uh, oh, want you
1: looking at me. And now it's time for a guest DJ set from a vowed adventure time fan, Open Mike Eagle. And I mean that, like, seriously. He's such a big fan that he did a podcast about the show. But enough TV talk. Here's some music. I always
3: want to talk about Eugene McDaniel lately. Um, He was a soul singer from like the 60s and like the 70s. He kind of really just went off on his own, like kind of revolutionary path and um, started singing these like super angry, pro-black, painful soul songs. Um, One of them's called like Supermarket Blues. And, I, and, and I'm loosely quoting it, but he just like goes in to get a can of peas and they give him beans by accident or something. And when he comes back, they like beat him up and because he's black and like and it's just all of this pain in it. And it's like it's this little tinge of absurdity, but it's also based in this realism of like the danger of being a black man in public in the 70s and not even the physical but also the things that people would that would say to him and like it's like damn <laughs> to take that sort of existential uh angst and put it into this beautiful soul song like, oh man like that's that's the kind of sh- that resonates with me you know what up to the counter, slammed my hand down on the cashier and said, "Excuse me, please." But I bought this can of pineapple the other day. When I got it home, it was a can of peas. Goddamn!
1: If I'd wanted those, I'd have picked my nose and strolled on in the back to the vegetable freeze, Uh huh. Just then, the supermarket manager hit me from behind. Brought me to my knees, y'all. I got the supermarket blues, and it's really much more than I can ever use, yeah.
3: I, I always say like talking about Serengeti, who's my good rap buddy. Uh, we had a group together called Kavanaugh. We started it and retired it in about a year. Um, but his, uh, he's, he's my favorite like working rapper, like he just makes songs that are that are just uh, emotionally available, not at all trite, um, very visual, and he's got a wonderful ear for melody. Uh, there's a song he has called "Flutes" that I always like to play for people. Its first verse is like, it's like him in some awkward situation where this girl where her like boob fell out but he doesn't know what to say but he wants to say something but he doesn't want to like seem like a creep and like and it's just this stream of consciousness first over this really pretty beat and it's like "This this is perfect you know what I mean
1: Hey, Getty Kings, spaghetti Getty Strings Snip, taboo fell out of bit. excuse me ma'am, I see your ham, I hope the guys don't curse me, damn, I like it like I found a bike. the prettiest thing I've seen tonight, prettiest thing I saw in years, including those two volunteers, the couch surfed and loved dessert, wore those sweet and gathered skirts, even prettier than them, prettier than a precious gem, pretty as an onion stem, A weekends at the MGM, I can't see why your strap is snipped, I'm not complaining not a bit, I'm not... to destroy the
3: convoy that was carrying La Croix and also little kids' toys I made a mistake I also poisoned an artificial lake it wasn't my best moment so at night the king lies awake Floyd my am listening to a lot of like The Police lately um I like just In Yada Mandada album oh, there's a song on there uh, I don't remember what it's called. When the world is really you take the best of what's still around is running down You the best of still around my Like, it's that whole album. It's just full of these beautiful, catchy songs with this lightweight punk energy and weird reggae undertones. I don't know. I'm, I'm really into that. Last week, I've been re-obsessed with this one breeder song called No Aloha. Um, and I don't know what the f*** it is about the song. I really don't. Um, but it just literally starts off, and for most of the song, it just kind of feels like somebody floating on an island singing. like. And that's kind of because kind of the, the guitar going on is a little bit surf-rocky. But the melody is just so beautiful.
0: No bye, no aloha. Gone with a rock promoter.
3: And and it seems to be about, and and this is Kim Deal saying, it seems to be about maybe a, uh, a guy, maybe a girl, whoever that she was interested in and it has gone off with the rock promoter and she's kinda left floating on this island. And um it's pretty and it's haunting and I've been listening to it for twenty years now. <laughs>
1: And Mike, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. This was great. Absolutely, ma'am. Glad um, to be able to talk with you. Yeah, it's uh, it's unbecoming of a gentleman to gush too much, but I'll just <laughs> but I'll just say that I'm a fan. I appreciate that a lot, <laughs> ma'am. Thanks. Thank you. That's all my conversation with Open Mike Eagle for today. Uh, Mike's latest project is a collaboration with British producer Paul White called Hella Personal Film Festival, and it's out now. After the break, you'll hear my chat with the most bruised and battered professional wrestler-turned-author of all time. It's The Guest List. The snake
2: you have to worry about is not the one in the back. It's me.
1: Longfellow couldn't have said it better. I'm Sean Cannon. It's The Guest List. And now it's time for my conversation with professional wrestling legend Mick Foley.
2: My main mandible is me. Do love hanging out with the original this cat. The time has come to relieve that pain. Which will be better for me, but not so enjoyable for all of you. The world is smiling at you. The wrestling business is smiling at you. And don't you frown back on it! I think you know him pretty damn
0: well! His name is Cactus
1: Jack! It's really Mick Foley, but I guess you can call him Dude Love, Mankind, or Cactus Jack if you want. You're also probably wondering, uh, why I'm blasting Tori Amos while we discuss one of the most extreme professional wrestlers of all time. You know, a, a guy who'd wrap barbed wire around his arms, uh, get body slammed on broken glass, and and just generally rip himself to shreds night in and night out. Well, we'll get to the specifics of, of why in just a minute, but generally speaking, it's because you can't always judge a book by its cover. And speaking of book covers, you spin on a couple of them, which is, I guess, kind of part of the point, too. In addition to being a legendary figure in pro wrestling and a stand-up comedian these days, he's a best-selling author. Legitimately. Not like those people that have ghostwriters. He was in town a little while back for one of his stand-up shows. Or, well, as, as he called them, uh, uh, one of his shows that doesn't suck but might also be funny. Either way, uh, he, he came into the studio to talk about basically everything I just mentioned. And then some. Here's a portion of that conversation. You can find the rest of it in the Guest List archives on iTunes. What year did you start
2: wrestling? I started in uh, 1985. Uh, I thought I hung up the tights for good. Two thousand yeah, I did say tights, even though they were technically sweatpants by that point, <laughs> uh and they weren't boots, they were sneakers, uh yeah yeah, I guess so, but uh and I spent uh, four years where I did not do any wrestling at all uh came back against uh, uh uh teamed up with the rock for his first match in several years, and then it was really after the second novel in two thousand and five where I went, okay, I can spend three or four hundred hours. In a, uh, in a in a room above my garage, and then go out on the road for thirty days, or I can make the same money by wrestling Carlito. <laughs> I just <laughs> thought, you know, I got kids; I am not going to uh, uh, focus all my attention on being the best writer I can be. I am going to try to be home a little bit more often.
1: So it really was at that point, because you know some some wrestlers, um, you know, I, I hate to I hate to talk about the movie The Wrestler specifically, <laughs> but it's like some guys. They just can't get away from it. It's it's like their mistress. But it sounds like for you, it was more like, I I I could uh, I just make my, this, this is good. This no, is good.
2: well you know it was my love of my life uh, un- until until <laughs> uh, after uh, two thousand and four. I have to admit that's the point where uh, I was you know the the matches started becoming about making money instead of doing something more, you know wonderful and memorable. Two thousand and six, I did propose an outlandish idea that I had a lot of faith in. Uh, and it, you know, it, it it really (laughs) could have made quite a bit of money uh, becoming a bad guy for the first time in eight years. Mm. Had I chosen to do with anyone outside of two guys that our fan base was not, you know, Terry Funk, who was with an N, just so you guys don't get slapped with some type of fine, it's Funk with an N. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, Tommy Dreamer, who hadn't been, you know, put in, uh, you know, shown in real favorable light mm-hmm. uh, at that time, and I had a great idea, and it's, you know, it, the, the the idea and like the uh, the destruction and the crumbling of the idea, the loss of faith from the people at the top, is all in the Hardcore Diaries, which came out, and I think it's a I think it's a great book, and it says something about WWE that they would allow me, they they would publish a book that so clearly is negative in many ways, is about it. a great idea that falls, it, you know, as I'm writing it, the idea is falling apart. Yeah. And at the end of the book, it's like, would I do it again if, uh, you know, if I had the chance? And I quoted Stone Cold Steve Oz I said, oh, hell no, this is one of the worst ideas i ever had. I'll forever regret coming up with this idea. But I did, you know, I had a lot of passion in that idea. But basically, anything after that point, was uh, a financial, you know, a, a, the economy was bad and uh, had uh, four kids. And so, yeah, I'm, uh, anything from uh, 2008 on was uh, strictly...
1: <laughs> Just about the money. Just about
2: the money. Whereas these shows are not. I love the shows. Yeah. I don't look like I'm a guy going through the motions. I, uh, I love being up there. I love getting the reactions. I'm not afraid of... Uh, uh, not living up to my expectations. I'm not afraid of, you know, damaging myself physically permanently like I was in those <laughs> last few years. So it's all in all a much better deal for me to be on this stage than in
1: that ring. So wait, you just said you weren't afraid to damage yourself physically like you were for the last few years. So you mean you weren't really, like, scared of uh, killing yourself for the first, I
2: don't know, 15? No, I mean, some of the, some of the remarks that I made just seem just... Stunning to me, like uh, and how driven I was. I remember Tracy Smothers. Tracy's a guy uh, in Japan. He's uh, watching me prepare, and I'm obviously in a different zone because I'm listening to Tori Amos singing "Winter" on the uh, (laughs) Sony Walkman. Not even a Discman on the Walkman, and I'm just in the zone.
0: Snow can wait. I forgot my mittens. Wipe my nose. Get my new boots on.
2: And they're putting up that body to take down the ropes, they put up the barbed wire, and it's real, you know, real barbed wire. And I have every, uh, uh, you know, reason to believe I'm going to come back from that match in much worse shape than I entered it. And Tracy just looked at me, and said, like, Cactus, promise me you won't do anything crazy out there. And I looked at him like it was the most bizarre request ever made, and I just went, you know I can't do that. So I was uh I was pretty driven. Yeah, I I wasn't uh I wasn't necessarily looking at the consequences, the long-term consequences of doing some of that stuff, uh, which uh only really surfaces when I have to uh take on a flight of stairs.
1: So it yeah. so that's all it was. If you if you had if you had lived in like a four-story walk-up brownstone in Brooklyn, you might not have killed yourself as much. No, because the
2: knees only—they started really going in 99. Oh, okay. Up until then, I was like, I feel pretty good. And then within a year, it was, uh, you know, I describe it in my show as saying, uh, you know, that at a certain point in time, in the late 90s, uh, Mother Nature and Father Time decided to team up and beat my bleep, you know. And then when they they decided to kick my bleep, you know, they did it rather uh, decisively, you know, they... And, it within was, a, and within a year, I went from a guy who moved around fairly well to a guy who could barely, you know, take on a flight of stairs. It's you know, it was just taking a depressing turn. This is supposed to be
1: no, it's good. Now it's is, now we're going to get down to the show pretty.
2: that the show that doesn't suck, <laughs> but isn't necessarily funny. <laughs> <laughs> Taking a depressing tone. It, do- no. it
1: doesn't suck, but it's not necessarily fun. If it wasn't for the
2: festive uh, attire I'm wearing, yeah, this could be a downer. Yeah, things things would have taken a bad turn. But since we're on radio, no one can see the festive attire. That I think
1: if, I think it comes through. I think yeah. I can hear it in your voice. Right. I'm gonna close my eyes. Give me a little bit. I wish I was dead.
2: Yeah, I can uh, hear it. Okay, I can yeah, hear. The, yeah. I can hear the shirt. You can hear the jingle bells. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah.
1: I, can, I, can, I get those stockings. <laughs> I was going through and watching some of your old footage. I don't know, maybe a month ago, and it really does blow my mind that uh, you know you were doing the things you were doing that long ago. Because I remember when extreme wrestling became a phenomenon that uh, the mainstream wrestling world was paying attention to. But you were doing that stuff way, yeah, way I, before yeah. that.
2: Yeah, I, even when I wrestled for a mainstream group like WCW, uh, I brought some pretty extreme elements uh into the matches and then when i went to japan after leaving uh wcw you know we really <laughs> kind of uh you know redefined uh what that type of wrestling could be and pushed the envelope about as far as you could possibly push it
1: yeah it bl- i mean it's still it's still that's what i mean it still blows my mind when i see you covered just entirely in blood you can't even tell what it is
2: Here you see some eyes you know peeking out from a Crimson Mask, as we call it, you know, yeah, it was. Um, man, my kids got a hold of that stuff. My younger Ooh. kids on YouTube, and uh, they started looking at Dad in a different way. <laughs> they, up until that point, they couldn't see what the because uh, they saw like the you know the uh, the latter day uh, oh, yeah, Dad, yeah, you know where I was like I said I was you know trying you know trying not to. I mean, I still would go out and have a physical match, but primarily the uh, objective was to not get too badly hurt the objective wasn't to tear the house down like yeah. i wanted to do that too but it wasn't my primary objective whereas in those old days like i said you know someone would try to talk sensitive to me and i'd look at them like they were just bizarre <laughs> you know i can't do that
1: <laughs> while, while listening to tori amos
2: yeah and uh tori tori loves that story Really, yeah, she does yeah she really um she uh, is a big believer in the, the power of music and uh, its ability to touch uh, other lives in unique ways. And so, uh, you know, she's been asked about it. And it's like, you know, uh, the, the music doesn't have to be loud or aggressive to, uh, to uh, really touch somebody.
1: No, but that seems like a particularly stark image of, uh, you know, of Cactus Jack getting ready to go and mutilate himself. Listening, <laughs> well, listening the idea to train, wasn't
2: to mutilate, it was to entertain, right?
1: But you know, that's what's that gonna a, happen. The
2: mutilation was a byproduct of yeah. the entertainment. But uh, you know, that one particular song really uh spoke to me not to create, not to create you know horrible images, but really uh, uh, and you know, made me believe in myself and made me feel like I was tough enough and strong enough and brave enough to go out there and do the things that needed to be done to make that match as good as it could possibly be.
0: Snow can't wait, I forgot my mittens, wipe my nose, get my new boots on. I get a little warm in my heart when I think of winter. I put my hand in my father's clothes. I run off where the drifts get deeper. Sleeping beauty it trips me with a frown. I hear a voice you
1: must love. Me. And now you know uh, just how powerful the music of Tori Amos can be. I'll mention this again. What you just heard with Mick Foley was just a small part of my conversation with the wrestling legend. You can find more of it in the guest list archives on iTunes. You know, I guess I'll just uh, let Tori Amos play me out here. Well, that's all I've got this week here on the guest list from WFPK, a Louisville public media station. Stacey Owen is our executive director. Andy High is the technical director. Our theme song is from Broncho, and we get special assistance from Margaret Darling. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon, and as always, those uh, Mother of Pearl coveralls are provided by Redcap. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Sean Cannon, that's Mr Sean Cannon, and you can find everything we have to offer on our website, wfpk.org slash guest list. And you know if if you uh, if you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes because it makes a difference. I'll see you next week. Steer into it.
0: Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at (laughs) visionzerolouisville.org.